Hello and welcome to the Random Walks podcast. Today I have Dr. George Church, who is a geneticist, molecular engineer, and a chemist, and the Robert Winthrop Professor of Genetics at Harvard Medical School, along with holding the appointments of Professor of Health Sciences and Technology at Harvard and MIT. And he was also a founding member of the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering, and also founding team of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Welcome, Professor Church. Uh, yes, uh, it's great to be here. So, Professor Church, you have had an incredibly fascinating journey at the frontiers of science for over, well over the last four to five decades at all. So, how did it all start for you? Were there any early childhood inspirations or were there some experiences that actually fascinated you and set you on a career path on science, which has been absolutely fascinating and revolutionary? Well, I, I had uh, uh, essentially zero uh, role models growing up, at least until, you know, until uh, I was 14 years old. Um, there was almost no science in my school um, until, uh, until I was around 13. And uh, I didn't know any scientists or engineers. Uh, the closest I came to that was I... I uh, uh, I knew the elect- our family friend was an electrician, meaning he would, <laughs> he would, you know, plug in electric lights and things like that. So, uh, and he did help me build uh, one of my first computers. He, uh, his name was Stanley Starr, and uh, I was desperate to, to build a computer. I mean, all this stuff, I don't know where it came from, but it just welled up inside of me, and I wanted to build a computer, and he... Um, uh, showed me how to use a galvanometer and uh, variable resistors and Kirchhoff's laws, uh, which could, you know, which are about um, resistor networks, uh, to uh, to build an analog computer, and that's the best I could do for a while uh, until until uh, until I went away to school. Uh, so I grew up in Florida, and that was. I don't think science was their absolute top priority, although we were very proud of Cape Canaveral, uh, the, you know, sort of the rocket science. Uh, but, but by the time it trickled down to my elementary and uh, junior high, there was, there was very little science going on. So I guess I got inspired by my environment and uh, by biographies that I would read. Um, that my mother would provide. She wasn't a scientist, but she was somehow very excited that I, I liked math and science. So she would give me lots of uh, books and encyclopedias and um, picture books. I was dyslexic, so I got inspired by the picture books, uh, things like the Time Life series on uh, nature and science, 25 volumes each. That, that definitely inspired me. That's really fascinating, having those early childhood inspirations and drawing inspiration from the environment around you, as well as the books that you read. You talked about building a computer and also getting a chance when you eventually went to high school to actually work on a proper one and all. So were it still the days of punch card computing or were the early versions of Macintosh in the market? Oh, no, no. It was way before uh, personal computers. It was... Uh... But it wasn't punch cards either. So it was a, uh, a teletype, such as they used in the newsrooms. So it was a sort of a floor-mounted, fairly small 
roll of, of, of kind of cheap paper, just a big roll of paper and a, a little hammer that would hammer out the, uh, the, the words. And so it was interactive. You could type something in and hit return and it would, it would, it would type back an answer. So when, uh, so when I went away to school, I moved from Clearwater, Florida to uh, Andover, uh, Massachusetts. Um, I was on my own, I was living away from home. And I, I, one of the first things I started asking around is, was there a computer? I somehow felt there should be a computer at this, at this fancy new school. And m most people didn't know what I was talking about, but eventually somebody said, there might be one in the basement of the math building. And uh, so I went, to the base of the math building, and there was a, a dark room with no furniture in it um, other than a teletype. That's, that's, as I recall, that's the only thing that was in the room, no tables, no chairs. <laughs> and I don't know. And uh, so I would kind of stoop over it, and I would type into, I well, I turned it on first, and I hit, I'd type, you know, how do you do this thing? And I hit return, and it would say, what? And I said, wow, I'm having a conversation with a computer. This is like, uh, this is amazing. And uh, but then I would, the next thing I typed, it said what to it. Basically said what to everything I typed in, and I realized, then I realized that either it was very stupid or I was not communicating properly. And eventually I, uh, I figured out how to, uh, how to get it to do something other than what. I mean, I think maybe I typed in an equation or something, and it, and it gave an answer. Um, and then I went out and I, I, I looked for a book. I found out that it, that it was... Uh, the system it was on was the Dartmouth system. So, so we were, a high school is connected to, uh, by uh, a wire, uh, essentially to um, Dartmouth College. And they, they were real pioneers. This was 1968. So there, it was very early on. Um, it was pre-internet, it was pre-ARPANET. Uh, so it was about the same time that ARPANET was starting. and. Uh, so this was a little internet, a little network experiment. Uh, and so, um, so anyway, I, I found out that the professors that were kind of in charge of this so-called time-sharing system where everybody would use the same, swap out time, it gave you the illusion of being, well, it was interactive. Uh, I found a book that they had written uh, on a programming language, and I read the book, and I basically tried out every example they had in the book. Uh, I would type it in and, and run it out. So instead of punch cards, we had paper tape, but, but it had the inter interactive experience that you don't get with punch cards. It wasn't until I finished high school, so that was my first year in high school. Four years later, I went uh, to Duke University, and there I was using punch cards. So four years later, I, got, I, I went from interactive to less interactive. Uh, but it was still good. It was, it, it was a, a very powerful, both of them were very powerful computers. The first one was a GE 635, and the second one was an IBM 360. Very powerful of the day. I mean, today they're, they're a tiny fraction of the power of this thing, but uh, my cell phone. But anyway, that, uh, that, was, that was my start in, 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 in real digital computers rather than analog uh, and mechanical computers that I had used before. That's really incredible. And getting a taste of computing before it sort of exploded in the sense and personal computers came onto the market and with the rise of the internet and, and the ARPANET and all, it really revolutionized 
whole fields right from science to many other different fields and all so considering your incredible interest in computing one would feel you will go off to college to major in either in computing or the physical and mathematical sciences or the engineering sciences but you eventually double majored in chemistry and zoology and you finished it in a couple of years so what spurred you to explore the life sciences of sorts and how was undergrad like yeah, it was, it, it was, it's a very interesting question you're asking because as it turns out, when I took the advanced placement courses, I did very well in math and physics and not so well in chemistry and biology. In fact, poorly enough that, that most universities would not have allowed me to go on to, to the uh, advanced classes uh, without taking the freshman courses. And I did not want to take the freshman courses. They were quite... Uh, uh, cutthroat, they, you know, they were uh, pre-meds who, who, I mean, I, I got nothing against uh, medical students. Uh, I teach at a medical school, but the pre-meds at, at many colleges, including Duke, were extremely cutthroat. They even cheated on their exams in order to get ahead. And I just didn't want to be in with a freshman class. Um, so anyway, Duke did allow me to, to pass out of uh, freshman chemistry and biology as well as physics and, 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 uh, and calculus. Um, and I didn't, I, I, I felt so advanced in computers that I didn't feel like taking any courses. So I went straight to doing independent research with, uh, uh, with some of the faculty there. Um, notably, Max Woodbury was uh, my main faculty advisor. Uh, and, uh, and, and, he introduced me to some formal uh, symbolic uh, uh, math uh, programming, uh, which at the time was brand new. I, I had done a little bit of it in high school. Uh, there was a, I think, Project Mac or something like that at MIT had uh, one of the PhD students or one of the theses had been on uh, formal function differentiation. So, you know, uh, you know, saying that. Uh, dx squared dy is equal to 2x, right? Um, so doing that all in symbolic, not, not numerically. And so I, ha I had written a, a, a version of that that was much more well, his, his was written in uh, Lisp, which I knew uh, that language, but I wrote it, I rewrote it in a language that had better formatting, <coughs> which was a, a form of basic. So, uh, so that's so I continued that kind of work with Max Woodbury. So that was my computing. I didn't take any courses, which I probably should have. Uh, and a uh, similar thing happened with uh, physics. I mainly took physical chemistry and quantum physics. Uh, I took quantum physics uh, during the summer at MIT. Um, but yeah, I, I would have liked to have uh, uh, majored in those. I was better at those. Uh, but somehow I, I just was drawn, I just felt that biology and chemistry, because it was harder, it somehow attracted me more. I, I can't quite explain why. I, I, I felt that the complexity was something that I wanted to, to master. And I, and I, but I was really looking for a project more than a course uh, where I could do all of them, where I had to do all of them. And I found that um, my second year in college so my first year, I, I did research uh, at the computing I already mentioned, but I also did lab research on mycoplasma, a, a tiny microorganism that's uh, uh, parasitic uh, mostly. 
And then the second year, I found crystallography, and somehow Kim was my uh, advisor there. And uh, I, uh, and that was, that was like an amazing epiphany. In crystallography, you, you really had to know computers and automation and physics of diffraction and the math of Fourier tr uh, transforms and the chemistry of the, you know, aromatic and single bonds, and you needed to know the biology or for why, why transfer RNA uh, was part of the genetic code. So you really needed all these things. Um, and, that, and that's just, I just never turned back. From that point on, everything I did had to involve all of the sciences and computing and math. That's really a beautiful experience you had at your undergrad. And you talked about your early interest in crystallography. And that was the time a lot of advances were happening, especially across the Atlantic, at the LMB, at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology and all, of giants of peer. Uh, giants of crystallographies were elucidating structural details by the dozen, and many of them had shared your path of sorts. Many of them were trained in the physical sciences. Many of them, like Clark and Ferruz, held physics PhDs, and they switched to sort of making revolutionary strides in biology of sorts. So did you also anticipate the forthcoming biological revolution where biology will undergo the transformation that physics one could say, event in the early half of the 20th century. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was, I mean, I was just a teenager. I was very optimistic, uh, and uh, I think I was naively optimistic, um, not intelligently optimistic. Uh, and I, it just seemed obvious to me that if you could do, um, if you could do crystallography, um, on one uh, molecule like transfer RNA, and then, and then you had a big uh, collection of one-dimensional sequences, ACGT, of, of many relatives, and you could fold them up and, and get many. And I, and I quickly found out that sequencing was hard, but it was a lot easier than crystallography. So there were hundreds of tRNA sequences and only one tRNA crystal structure that, that we had helped do. Um, and I did fold them all up in three dimensions, and they all folded up to the same, you know, that you could fit their sequences onto the same three-dimensional fold. And I thought, this is really great. Um, maybe you can do this for all, all, all of uh, biology, you know, that you could just determine the, the, the one-dimensional sequence and then fold it up into DNA, RNA, and protein. And uh, that was pretty naive for, for, you know, this is 1973, 1974. Um, but, but the problem was there was almost no, I mean, no automation or computers in any aspect of biology or chemistry other than crystallography. Crystallography was, was quite advanced in that regard, uh, anomalously so. And in fact, there are many fields of, um, uh, even physics that did not have much automation. Uh, there was, it was all a lot of manual. Uh, we had, for example, we, to, to scan in a photograph from electron micrograph would take hours. I mean, just to scan it in, in grayscale uh, with a scanner, um, there, was noth there was nothing the equivalent of a, you know, you know, a camera that could take you know, uh, 96 
960 frames per second uh, at, you know, uh, 4,000 uh, by 4,000 pixels. I mean, that's just out of the question. Um, so I, I, I thought, well, I'll take this strength in crystallography and see if I can just do analogous things in, um, in biochemistry, in, in particular, starting with DNA and then proteins and then RNA and then... And then those constitute those could be transferred into what was called functional genomics, um, uh, and systems systems biology, which were kind of observing how all these macromolecules and small molecules interact in a systems model. And then that led to um, quickly to synthetic biology. Uh, so that was kind of the the trajectory of going from crystallography and then permeating it through all these other fields. Uh, uh, and you know, in enabling technologies that enabled the computing. You couldn't really do computing if you didn't have some source of data, and data required new new technologies. That's incredibly prescient points you made, and you have immediately you completed your undergrad in little over two years, and in two in just two years, and then you started off in grad school at, at Duke itself, and you had a pretty interesting time and eventually you went to Harvard and Wollegelwurz lab and eventually completed your PhD and all. So could you just shed some light on the happenings around that time, especially your incredibly fascinating experience during grad school? Uh, yeah, fascinating. Is, is, uh, so um, yeah, I was, I um, was immature, uh, I mean, because I had kind of gone through undergraduate so quickly, I was very young, and I had to essentially apply, start, <clears throat> start the application process to graduate school um, as a freshman, or at the end of freshman year, and, uh, and I also applied to medical school, and I got into medical school and graduate school, uh, but, I just, but by that time I had, uh, when I started applying, I had, had not yet done crystallography, but by the time I got the acceptances, I was addicted to crystallography. And in particular, I wanted to continue what I was doing in Sung Ho Kim's lab on the crystallography of transfer RNA. And so I decided to accept the, the Duke offer. Um, but I, I, had, I had applied, because I had applied so early, I had applied to the wrong department. I had not known Sung Ho at that time, so I had applied to microbiology. Sung Ho was in biochemistry, a different, completely different department. And so I took my first year courses in microbiology. Um, and, but, but I was spending all my time researching in, in biochemistry. And so then I didn't do that well in, in, in the microbiology courses. And so then they let me transfer to biochemistry. They figured, get rid of this guy. He's not very good anyway. Um, and then in biochemistry, I did even worse. <laughs> I flunked out of biochemistry uh, because I was just working all the time on the crystallography. I just thought it was the most fascinating thing. Um, and so I flunked out, and then I became a technician. So I had been a sort of a technician as an undergraduate, part-time, to help pay my way through undergraduate. And part of the reason I finished in two years was because I, di I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't really have the money, I, or I felt that I didn't want my parents to have to pay for it. So, so in graduate school, they, they pay you to go to school rather than me paying them. I thought that was a great deal. I would get to graduate school as fast as possible. So, uh, so then 
I got, I, I transitioned from graduate school to technician where I got paid even more. I mean, we're not talking about very much money. It was like a couple thousand dollars a year. But uh, anyway, it was, for me, it was a princely sum, more than I needed. Um, and, but, but Sung Ho, thankfully, said, uh, you know, you're not a very good technician either. Uh, maybe you should go back to graduate school. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow advice that well. I mean, I wouldn't argue. I just would go off, drift off and do other things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would break, break things. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, so um, uh, I did. I applied to graduate school. But continuing in the theme of being immature uh, and uh, not making good decisions, I applied to only one graduate school. Uh, I, normally, having flunked out of graduate school, you should probably apply to some second and third tier backup, you know, safety net schools. But I only applied to one, which was like the hardest one to get into, which is Harvard. And I somehow managed to get into it, uh, even though I had just flunked out of Duke. That's really interesting. Alan, how would you went on to join Professor Gilbert's lab? So before we come to that, considering your interesting experience in grad school at Duke, do you see any merit in graduate schools making it a policy to complete some required coursework and all, especially for people who accomplished groundbreaking research results like you did? And there have been some other exceptional cases. Someone called Freeman Dyson comes to our mind who passed away last year and who also even went to graduate school at Cornell working with Hans Bethem, but he never completed and all. But he was a pivotal figure in the whole quantum electrodynamics revolution. And you too were making groundbreaking strides in your research and all. So do you see the, these policies should sort of make exceptions for exceptional students and people like you who come into those programs? Uh, I, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I, I knew Freeman Dyson pretty well. Uh, he was uh, clearly a, an exceptional uh, mind. Uh, but it's not always clear. It's not always clear to be able to tell that when they're students. Uh, you know, when you're starting graduate school, um, they can just seem flaky. They can seem undisciplined, and they and if you and you're and I think the faculty worry that if they don't discipline them, then they never will contribute anything. Even if, they're, even if you can see that they're kind of smart, you're, you worry that they won't um, buckle down and do anything with their life. And that does happen. There are a lot of people that are sort of early bloomers, uh, you know, prodigies and whatnot, that, that just never quite contribute. So I, I, I don't think it's that simple. In my case, it, would, it, it was a little simpler in that I had already taken the courses they wanted me most of the courses they wanted me to take uh, as an undergraduate. They said, well, you took those, you know, when you were uh, a freshman and a sophomore. And I said, yeah, but that was last year, <laughs> right? I mean, it was fresh in my mind. Uh, and they said, well, uh, uh, they wanted me to take them again, and I just didn't want to take the courses again. So I think that, that, that would have been an obvious thing. It was hard to tell from my research whether I was uh, exceptional or not. I mean, I was exceptionally hardworking, uh, and, uh, but I, I don't think they could tell. Um, I think Sung Ho uh, could tell. I mean, my advisor knew there was something uh, different about me, 
and he and he advocated on my behalf to to, to you know get, they want he wanted them to give me a second chance. But he was an assistant professor. Um, I mean, he was a very respected assistant professor, but he was at the bottom of the faculty rung, and there was a big faculty full of you know very top heavy with lots of full professors, and they just just said, look, uh, you know, uh, we're, we can't take a chance. And also, it was their policy uh, at the time that they would bring in about twice as many graduate students as they expected to give PhDs. Um, and so I was not particularly unusual. In fact, the the, you know, the, there's an uh, advisor for the graduate students, uh, and uh, he, when, when you'd go and visit him, he would have behind him on his wall, right behind his desk, a bunch of pictures of all the students, you know, like a class would be a pretty big class. I mean, maybe, I don't know, 40 students all lined up, a uh, little photo, black and white. That was fine. That was not nothing strange about that. But then if you look carefully, uh, a bunch of them had X's through their uh, faces, a little black Sharpie X's. And there was about half of them. And, you know, you, you got you, you realize that those were people that are no longer uh, students. And I, I figured, well, that'll be me someday. <laughs> and sure enough, it was. Uh, uh, so, you know, they just didn't, they didn't, they did, that particular university did not have a policy of keeping their students. Now, when I got to Harvard, they had a, a it was a much better ratio. They, they uh, um, some classes, everybody got a PhD. In my class, it was a particularly small class. It was like, uh, six people, and one of them did, did not get his PhD, but I think that's because he had already, a, while a graduate student, he had applied to medical school, and so they knew he was leaving anyway, so they threw him out. <laughs> I think that's what happened, yeah. Um, so, uh, it, it would be nice if you could recognize people early in their career, but it's very, it's really very hard, and the, the more different they are, the harder it is. So the, the less they conform to uh, expectations, the, it becomes a, a very random but interesting variable as to that they could contribute more than anybody else, but you really can't tell because they, they seem um, unsuitable. Those are some absolutely freezing points. So you returned to Harvard, you started working with Professor Wally Gilbert. Is, and, um, so was it uh, working in his lab, did you see the potential sequencing would have? And you were very early proponent of sequencing the human genome. You were part of the crucial meetings that eventually led the DOE and the government to put its money behind sequencing the human genome, what will eventually be called the human genome projects and all. And how did it sort of, uh, sort of did coming to Harvard, joining Wally Gilbert's lab, did pieces started falling in place in your incredible career you had, or you were on set on taking another random walk through the incredible journey you had in science? Uh, it was it was less random. It was it was definitely getting better. Uh, I decided that I was going to follow the rules, and it was much easier to follow the rules at Harvard, frankly, because the the courses were new and exciting. They were on uh, molecular biology and immunology, which I did had not taken as an undergraduate, um, uh, and the people who I had read about as an undergraduate were teaching the courses. So it's like Matt Messelson and Jim Wong and and Wally Gilbert uh, were 
you know, the professors. And so that was easier to get motivated about the, the uh, you know, the leaders of the field. Uh, so, so, but I did follow the rules uh, and, I, and I did well in my uh, courses again as I had as an undergraduate. So I, I knew I could do it. Uh, in fact, it was, a, 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 we'll get back to sequencing in just a second, but uh, it was a, a curious thing. My first year, uh, the only required course, there was only one required course, and it happened to be taught by a crystallographer. So I said, oh, this should be fun. And, uh, but I had to take it anyway. Uh, and, uh, and something like the fourth or fifth class, you know, he, the, the professor would show slides, old-fashioned slides, not PowerPoint, and, and, and they would take them from the literature. He'd just photograph them and, and put them on, on. And so, you know, we're, we're watching this day after day, and in the fourth or fifth class, I see a slide that I recognize. It's actually from one of my papers, of my PNAS paper on uh, the interaction between DNA and proteins. And the whole, you know, quite a bit of the faculty was excited about DNA protein interactions. There was not yet a crystal structure of a DNA protein interaction they were very excited about. So my paper was one of the few papers. So anyway, I was, I was just kind of, kind of like, you know, hopefully nobody will notice. And in fact, the professor did not know it was my paper until uh, a couple weeks later, he figured it out uh, on his own. Um, anyway, that was fun. Uh, uh, the, in terms of the sequencing, I mentioned that, that actually I was pretty excited about sequencing, obsessed about sequencing before I got to Wally's lab. Um, it was all tRNA sequencing, which Wally didn't do. Um, Fred Sanger did a bit of it. Bart Burrell did a lot of it uh, back at the MRC in Cambridge, England. Uh, that, that's, I got interested in that. And then uh, when Wally came to visit Duke, he was invited by uh, the graduate students. At that point, I was no longer a graduate student, but I pretended I, I hung out with the graduate students. And so I actually spent almost the whole day with Wally um, when he was visiting. Uh, I, I spent part-time with him because he met with the crystallographers, and I part-time at his seminar and part-time with the graduate student lunch, and I think maybe even dinner. Anyway, Got a lot of time with him, uh, and I'm sure he thought I was a goofball because I wasn't, uh, um, I wasn't a, a graduate student. Uh, but, uh, but then when I got to this lab, then things started, did start falling into place. I, I had a proposed project on multi, which ended up being called multiplexing. Just, I had come up with it during the summer uh, before I got there, uh, and I tried it out during my rotation, but of course, um, it, it failed the uh, first time, as these things do. And, and the student that was teaching me on my rotation sequencing um, said, you know, let's, let's do it by the book first, and then you can go off and do this crazy, you know, uh, multiplexing. And, uh, and then on, my next, on one of my next rotations, I rotated w in the crystallography labs with Don Wiley. And... Uh, and since I already knew crystallography, I decided that I, w I would use their, their newest instrument, which was a drum scanner that would scan um, uh, transparent films, so x-ray films. Um, and uh, we happened to use the same kind of x-ray films for crystallography and for DNA sequencing and also for x-raying bones. It was roughly the same film for each. And you, and you just cut it and fit it in the machine and would scan it. So I, I wrote software to read uh, DNA sequencing. This is in 1970, 
eight or so. It was like seven years before anybody else did, uh, before the, the popular uh, uh, ABI sequencer uh, came out. And, uh, and I took it back to, to my, my graduate student advisor. So he was, I think, five or six years ahead of me. He was finishing up and I was just starting. His name was Greg Sutcliffe and I, and I, and I said, look, uh, you know, I'm not doing multiplexing, I'm doing automated sequence reading. Isn't that cool? And he says, no, that's not cool. That's, that's the only part of sequencing that's fun is uh, sitting down with your coffee and, and pencil and writing down, you know, reading from the x-ray film onto a piece of paper. <laughs> and so at that point I had tried two new things and neither one of them looked like they were very uh, useful. Um, but I still was uh, fascinated with it and uh, um, pub published a couple of papers on RNA splicing uh, and mutants. But then um, while I was doing that, uh, a company called Biorad, um, so, uh, which you know, was a supplier of instruments and reagents that everybody used, um, they had sales representatives that would kind of wander through the labs. I mean, they just were free to just wander without security clearance through all the labs and they would talk to us and, and they, would, they would share secrets uh, or share information between labs and, and back to the mother company at, Bi at Biorad. Anyway, they found out that I had written this software for reading sequences and they got very excited about it and they uh, hired me as a consultant. So I'm just second year graduate student uh, and I would go to Philadelphia. So their, their headquarter, the headquarters for this division was in Philadelphia. And I taught them about sequencing. They, 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 uh, they, even though they were excited about it, they didn't really know much about it. What they did know was, was scanning films. So that, that was the main thing they were interested in. Um, and the, the um, kind of second engineer, his name was John West. And John West was a laser expert, um, sort of doing laser scanning of the x-ray films. And... Uh, and I, I taught a little about sequencing, and he taught me a little bit about engineering. And uh, he went on to, now we're getting into the, the real genome project. He went on after, so they, they ended up, Biorad did not come up with a sequencer. They came up with a densitometer, something that would scan x-ray films just for density. And I felt, oh, what a waste. They were just like this close to producing the world's first automated sequencer. And they just, they just dropped the ball. But it wasn't John West's fault, it was his superior, um, his, um, his boss. But anyway, John w went on to become the head of uh, the ABI division that brought out the, the, the automated sequencer that's, that was used to sequence the human genome, which I think was the model 3700. And then after that, he became the head of the division of um, Selexa, which later became Illumina. So while it was Selexa, he brought up their first instrument, the, the GA, um, and so he was literally in charge of the two most important instruments in the history of, of DNA sequencing, and um, and he got we, we got started on DNA sequencing together at, at at BioRad, where he was a junior engineer and I was a second year graduate student consultant. So that was that was really cool. And 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 actually, his daughter later uh, um, did spent three summers in our lab uh, and was the I think the first uh, high school student who sequenced her, who analyzed the sequence of herself and her whole family. So four um, DNA sequences. Um, this was 
um, um, somewhere around 2006 or seven. So while when I met him, it was around 1979 or 1980. So there's a, a long, we've known each other for a long time. That's really fascinating. And after completing your PhD, you sort of uh, had a brief stint at Biogen, and also you went off to work with a pioneer of embryonic stem cells, Professor Gail Martin at UCSF and all. So how were those two experiences, did your postdoctoral experiences influence you any sort of way in sort of seeking questions to answer eventually as you came back and joined the faculty at Harvard? Yeah, so my postdoc was quite brief. It was about two years, uh, which was especially brief considering that, you know, the half of it was at Biogen, where I more or less uh, finished up my thesis, uh, or finished up work that was done during my thesis. It was quite convenient because I was collaborating with Susuma Tanagawa, who was at MIT, which was just, uh, you know, a couple blocks away from the brand new Biogen. Uh, Biogen was a new startup company at the time, now it's a gigantic pharmaceutical company, but at the time it was just a little startup company down the street from MIT in Kendall Square area. And so I would, I would like walk to Susumu's lab where I was collaborating with Anna Frusi and then, uh, and then walk back to Biogen and, and do experiments there. Biogen was a very pleasant environment. They had, they, you know, they would make any, any chemicals you wanted. Uh, um, and I spent a lot of that time getting much better at electronics. So I built, uh, you know, a lot of um, electrophoresis devices, um, pulse field electrophoresis, and uh, and so forth. And uh, and I was basically killing time, uh, uh, waiting for my uh, girlfriend to finish her PhD. So she, um, um, and and then when she finished, we both went to um, to the Bay Area. I, I was at UCSF, and she was at Stanford. Uh, and then, and then she, after a couple of months, she decided she didn't like Stanford, and so she went back to the East Coast to start her own institute um, in Connecticut, loosely affiliated with Yale. So she was a real dynamo. I mean, she, you know, it, I, it never would occur to me to start my own institute, but you know, she did. But, I, but the consequences, I had to go, I felt I had to go back to the East Coast as well. So I had followed her. She had decided that she, to take us to, to California, and she had decided to take us back to the East Coast. And so I... It was worth the, the, the going, you know, the ping pong because uh, um, we've been together now for 41 years and we have a daughter and two granddaughters. So, you know, and, and we've done a lot of great science together. So um, it was definitely worth following uh, my dreams. Uh, um, but uh, Gail Martin's lab, so it, it was good that I spent at least a little bit of time there. Gail Martin was a, a uh, you know, a, a true pioneer. She had worked with Martin Evans in, during her um, uh, graduate work and, and postdoctoral work uh, on embryonic stem cells. And there were very, very few people in the United States who worked on embryonic stem cells. This was uh, in mice. And she had worked out uh, the correct growth media and so forth. And so I learned a great deal about embryos and embryonic stem cells, um, which was, I quickly found that it was premature, that, it was, that I, I didn't feel that I had the tools to, to work on it. The sort of things that were being done were not the sort of things I wanted to do. I felt that we needed uh, 
to be able to sequence the transcriptome of the of the stem cells and their differentiated derivatives, we needed to uh, um, be able to edit the genomes, uh, uh, which at the time was not being done in embryonic stem cells. Although it was getting, we we're just getting to the point where Mario Capecci and Oliver Smithies were starting to edit uh, initially fibroblasts and then uh, embryonic stem cells. Um, so I felt we needed at least those two technologies, you know, uh, RNA sequencing and, uh, and some kind of uh, homologous recombination. Uh, so I went off and, and uh, uh, started my lab at, at Harvard. Uh, and again, I have to say, Harvard saved my bacon several times, uh, three times at least. One was they picked me up after I flunked out of Duke. Uh, which they didn't have to do. Secondly, they um, picked me up from my postdoc, even though I hadn't done much. I hadn't, I hadn't published anything from my time at UCSF or Gail Martin, which is about a, a little over a year, um, which isn't really enough time to get much done. And the, and the embryonic stem cell work was very slow. So even if I had stuck to it, I would have ended up three years probably without a publication. But anyway, I, uh, they picked me up without any postdoctoral publications other than the, the science and nature paper that I had published in, uh, um, you know, with Wally and Susumu Tanigawa, um, which probably also explains why they picked me up in graduate school. I, I shouldn't make it sound too mysterious. I did publish five papers as a, you know, before I got to Harvard graduate school. So they had a reason to accept me. Uh, there's, it's, not, it's not like magic or anything. Um, so anyway, the, and the third time that Harvard saved me, um, where they, ha they had to look beyond some of the complexity, was that I was coming up for tenure, and I still had very few papers, um, but, uh, uh, and I lost my major source of funding. So, so the, the main criteria for tenure is that you uh, have papers and you have funding. And I lost my Howard Hughes Medical Institute funding for some complex reasons, including, uh, I mean, they weren't, uh, they didn't like the fact that I used computers. Uh, they would make that evident every year where they would strike the computers off of my budget. And they also didn't like the fact that I was doing what's now called translation, which were where I'd get the, uh, the methods out of my lab and into, uh, into commercial sectors so that, so that the world could benefit from them. They didn't like that either. Uh, so anyway, so I'm, I'm up for tenure and I've lost not all of my funding, but a major source and a very prestigious source that I lost. Um, but but uh, Harvard managed to find a philanthropist uh, who helped me establish computational biology. And I think the, the university didn't realize just how much it really needed computational biology, but they helped me set this up. Uh, Evelyn Lipper was the philanthropist in the, very good timing. And then I did manage to squeak by, just barely got tenure. Uh, and then the, the very next year, they asked me to be on like two uh, committees to, to, uh, to hire more computational biologists. So, uh, so they'd gone from not, not wanting one to wanting three or four. <laughs> and so, uh, so I was happy to, to, to see that happen.
So those were seemingly very revolutionary times. Computers were becoming in vogue, especially in biology, as you talked about. The folks at HHMI were pretty skeptical and something that translated to lo- losing your funding source. But at the same time at Harvard, a lot of strides were taking place, especially in those that time nascent fields of computational biology and all. And you were one of the pioneers and all. So uh, the way, um, so you were a pivotal figure in kickstarting the Human Genome Project. So something about a massive enterprise like the Human Genome Project. So was it something like, uh, how was uh, allotments made? Did specific labs start working on projects that they were allotted to by some higher figure of authority? Or was it like everyone chose their own projects and eventually it culminated in what will eventually be in the remarkable paper in science that was published sequencing the human genome, both in science and nature? Yeah, well, uh, that's a nice overview you gave. Uh, I, I have to say, personally, I was very disappointed with the project, both at the beginning and at the end. Uh, at the beginning, I, I, I was the youngest member of the group. This is in 1984, where we met uh, at a DOE meeting in Alta, Utah. There was a, it was a ski meeting, uh, and I think most of us were interested in ski. I certainly was interested in skiing. It was beautiful. Uh, you know, like nine foot deep powder. <laughs> it was amazing. But anyway, uh, um, we were tasked with finding out the mutation rate uh, in populations that could be influenced by energy sources, ranging from atomic energy, which the Department of Energy was in, in charge of, uh, of, all, of uh, all sorts of nuclear uh, weapons and uh, peaceful energy and chemical sources and so forth that could cause mutations. And we concluded within the first few minutes of the meeting that we could not help them with that, uh, but we had to do something with the meeting. And so we, we said, well, what we, we, many of us had never met before and, and we looked around the room and we realized that we had a lot of um, expertise in what would later be called genomics. I don't think the term was coined quite, or it was about that time was being coined. And uh, this is 1984. And so we spent the rest of the meeting uh, speculating on what it would take to sequence the human genome. And we pulled out of the air the number $1 per base pair. And we also said, well, we'll do one genome, which uh, I didn't like the idea of doing one genome, both because there's value in comparing genomes, but also uh, human beings don't have one genome in their cells. They have two genomes, the maternal and paternal. And so, so, the, so I was, and the third thing I was disappointed about was that it was, that I wanted it to be a technology project where you spent the beginning of the project getting awesome technology together that would save a bunch of money, and then the end of the project you sequence a bunch of genomes, and that just was not their vision. They, it was they hammered on it has to be the human genome, like as if there were, was the human genome, and it and it had to be one human genome, it couldn't be two because that would be twice as expensive, uh, blah, blah, blah. And it, was, and it had to be $3 billion. And they did manage to raise the money, and mainly I think thanks to Jim Watson. Uh, he was not at that 1984 meeting, but uh, he, he was, I think, at the 1985 or 86 meeting uh, at Cold Creek Harbor. And he became our representative in Congress and uh, a representative to Congress. He would talk to them about it and he got them excited. I think they were thrilled to be talking to, a, you know, the discoverer of DNA and Nobel Prize winner and all that stuff. 
And so, so we got a, a line item. So it wasn't out of the NIH budget. It was a whole separate budget. Um, so the, because the, everybody who had an NIH grant was against it. They did not want a big project uh, because they wanted to do their, their investigator-initiated research, little, little projects that would add up to something uh, unpredictable rather than a big project that had a particular goal. And they were worried, rightly so, that it would be unstoppable once you got started. And it, uh, and it, would just, and it wouldn't train students properly, and it would uh, just consume a lot of money. And, and in the end, 99% of the genome was junk DNA, so why did we want to sequence that? So they had a lot of good arguments against it. I would say easily every week or so there would be an a editorial or an uh, opinion piece in science or nature or, you know, some other journal uh, saying why the Genome Project was a bad idea. I mean, uh, the entire Department of Microbiology at, at Harvard, where I just, where I was going to be an assistant professor a couple years later, wrote uh, almost in unison. It's hard to get unanimous uh, decisions on anything academic, but they had an almost unanimous uh, letter that they wrote about why the Genome Project was a bad idea. Um, ironically, a couple years later, they were the first department to really benefit from the Genome Project because the first genomes that rolled out were microbial. They were, you know, bacteria. And so, so the, and they used them. They knew how to use the genomes once they came out. Um, so the, 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 the argument in favor of the genomes was that people were wasting a ton of time and money doing genomics. Uh, they were bad at it. You know, typically it would be done by a young graduate student who didn't know how to sequence, would easily waste six months trying to learn how to sequence. It wasn't easy. And then they would do it very inefficiently, or they would drop it. Just, they'd learn it and then drop it before they got anything out of it. Anyway, it was, it was way, way more than a dollar a base. Uh, because of all these inefficiencies, and, and cloning was also very inefficient. You would spend tons and tons of time cloning, uh, which in the Genome Project didn't have to like go after one gene at a time. You just, you just make a library and then you just start randomly sequencing. It was much, much easier. So anyway, there were economies of scale and, and, and it did turn out being uh, probably less expensive and the junk DNA wasn't really so junky. We did, we did in the end need to know the whole genome. You know, for example, for DNA editing, you know, need to know what's off target. There's regulatory sequences that aren't junk, and you can't tell what's junk and not junk without actually at least looking at it once. Uh, so there, it ended up that it was the they were right in their criticisms, but they were, uh, but the Genome Project was also right. Uh, but anyway, I was disappointed that it was aimed at one one species, human, that it was one genome when there are two genomes per person. I was uh, disappointed by the fact that it was going to be very expensive. Those would be $3 billion because I felt that, that the right number was something that we could all afford. And so, uh, so I kind of, I participated in a lot of the, any time there was technology development money, which there was almost no technology development money for the whole. 15 years, um, but w whenever there was a little bit, I would go for it. Um, there was more in the DOE than in the NIH, uh, so I, I had DOE money ever since 
more or less since that meeting in 1984. I got my first DOE grant in 87, and I've had it continuously um, till the, today, 2021. Um, they, got, they understood the, the, the need for technology development, and they, they were doing the Genome Project for three years before NIH got involved, and they were doing a pretty good job of technology development. They had chromosome sorting, they had um, you know, supercomputers, uh, they had um, uh, automation robots. Uh, uh, in fact, one of the first meetings was held, the first meetings, like I, was, I think it was the third meeting was in Santa Fe. They uh, had a robot uh, demonstrations, kind of like what they could do. There were two surprising demonstrations. One was uh, there was a robot with a single hand, like, like three fingers or something like that, that could, with one hand, solve Rubik's Cube. So it had a, a, a single lens camera and one hand that it could solve Rubik's Cube faster than any person could do it. And then another robot where we had to go out to Los Alamos, uh, you know, the weapons uh, facility, where they had a robot that was, I mean, gigantic. It was like five times bigger than a bus. And uh, its hand would come in through multiple layers of polyethylene uh, plastic bags, grab uh, a, a waste, uh, radioactive waste, and wrap it up in such a way that it was um, gas-tight sealed. And I thought, those two robots were just blew me away. I thought those were really cool. Uh, now, in the end, uh, um, the, you know, the breakthrough did not come from robotics, in my opinion. It did not come from economies of scale. It came, the, the breakthrough, and the breakthrough really didn't come until the Genome Project was over. Um, essentially, all the tools that we developed during the Genome Project, all the, uh, were, were thrown out. I mean, they were basically, they, 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 they cost, we spent the first five years mapping, and those mapping tools were not particularly relevant at the end of the Genome Project. Uh, well, then we spent uh, a decade uh, doing um, very slow electrophoresis-based uh, sequencing that did use a lot of robots, but basically the robots just, they, you could bot, you could fill a room full of machines and fill, and, and have a bunch of robots feeding those, those sequencing machines, but it didn't make it any cheaper. It basically, every time you bought another machine, it made it twice as expensive. Uh, it's just, you would, you would get it done faster, but not cheaper, so that the breakthrough finally came after as the Genome Project was winding down around 2004, there's a little, this is like, as the dinosaurs were decaying, the mammals were, were ascending, and the mammals were uh, multiplex, next-gen, fluorescent sequencing, basically. And we published the first uh, paper in 2005 on that. And the key wasn't parallelization or automation so much as multiplexing. So it was the idea of having all the samples mixed together so that now whenever you pipetted, whether it was by hand or by robot, didn't matter, th that droplet could contain millions of sequences. So all the steps you go through, the long series of steps, um, it, it costs the same amount, it was the same volume, this the same difficulty, the same instrument time to do a million as to do one. And so not surprisingly, the price came down by a million fold because of of multiplexing. And, and I think most people don't even realize that's 
what happened. They think, oh, it's the robots that did it, you know. And the robots were very cool, you know. They, and they had a whole bunch of them in Japan as well around that time. Uh, but that, that wasn't sufficient. Uh, I mean, anyway. That was an absolutely fascinating overview you came of the genome project and all. And uh, in the end, you talked about those two crucial papers that uh, th those few crucial papers around 2003 and 4 that came out of your lab and that effectively set on forth for the cost of sequencing as you talked about early on it was nearly three million dollars to get the genome sequence and basically those two papers catalyzed an exponential curve which was far more steeper than even Moore's law and today the cost has come down by over 10 millions of folds and all and a huge part is owed to you so were you aware of the potential that multiplexing will have the potential impact those two papers will have eventually and eventually you have also been a very active proponent of sequence uh, that everyone should have the genome sequence and all you famously sort of put it all out in the open access public and all. So do you see, uh, this is something, especially in this world where privacy is a lot of issue and all. So how do you see us negotiating the privacy challenges and all? But as you said, genome sequencing genomes is a very powerful technique and it allows us to tackle Mendelian genetics at a scale that along with CRISPR, something again that you pioneered in your lab and all at a exceptional pace, something that we couldn't even contemplate more than three decades earlier of sorts. Yeah, so it, it, it was surprising to some people. I mean, it, 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 when I was advocating getting everybody sequenced, of course, that did not make any sense if the price was going to be $3 billion. And that's part of the reason I, I didn't like even the stating of $3 billion as the goal. Uh, now, the people who, you know, wanted the money uh, wanted $3 billion, and, and it's understandable, but uh, I was, I wanted it to be, you know, $1,000 or less. It had to be affordable. And I knew it could be. There's nothing magical about three, 3 billion bits of information was not that much. Even, even back at the beginning of the Genome Project in 1984, I was, I was accustomed to thinking of that kind. And even back in 1974, when I first started folding up tRNA, and dreaming that we would have the sequence, not just of every human, but of everything, every living thing. Uh, you know, I was speaking in broad strokes at that point, but it, it didn't strike me as, the, it, it didn't strike me as it was gonna be that hard to store the data, that hard to, uh, to convert from one kind of digital information into another. I mean, A, C, G, and T is not that different from zeros and ones, and I knew that back in the 70s, and it just seemed to me that reading a disk drive, which was kind of a magnetic chemical representation of zeros and ones into zeros and ones in an abstract sense in the computer was not that expensive. So reading a magnetic tape or magnetic disk wasn't hard. Then why should reading uh, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine, why should that be hard? So uh, that was the naive version. But at each stage, I kept adjusting my naive, my, my naivety came down, but the capabilities went up. And so at every point, it always seemed quite feasible to me. Um, 
And now it is totally feasible uh, to, to sequence everybody in the world, although we still don't have any decent-sized project. I mean, everybody talks about doing a million people, but none of these million-person projects have taken off. I mean, that have, have delivered yet a million genomes. So, but it, it'll be a billion soon. You know, there's no doubt about that. And uh, uh, we couldn't really talk about privacy until we could talk about affordable genomes. And we couldn't talk about affordable genomes until we had the multiplex sequencing type of methods. Uh, but as soon as, as soon as we did, we immediately saw the, the consequence. So uh, the papers you mentioned in 2003 and 2005 were around the time we applied for a Center of Excellence grant in genomic sciences, uh, CEGS was the acronym. and uh, and in that very first um, uh, grant application, we included a section on the, implication, the, the implications for uh, privacy and for sharing of data and a lot of the issues that later became quite prominent. Uh, now, Jim Watson and, and the, the other people that helped get the money for the Genome Project, I think for whatever reason, not necessarily the right reasons, they, they set up a, a, a component which was Ethical Legal Social Implications, or ELSI, it was the acronym. And Jim was quoted as saying that he did it in order to put gold coins in the mouth of the ethicists, in other words, to shut them up by filling their mouths with, with gold. Uh, about somewhere between 1 and 3 percent of the budget was set aside for ethics. And again, I think that was a, a good idea. Not to shut them up, but to actually enable them. Um, and so I put in an LC component in the center grant, which as I recall was, you know, $10 million or something like that. And then just a tiny fraction of what was going to be for LC, you know, the one, three percent. I thought I was conforming to what they wanted. It turned out they, and they, they did, they gave, we got the, uh, we got the grant, uh, I got the center grant, which was, uh, it proposed to develop what was now called next generation sequencing. Uh, so we had very preliminary results uh, in that 2003 paper, and, uh, and the first result we got uh, for the grant, the grant was given in 2004. In 2005, we had the science paper uh, where we sequenced uh, E. coli genome with a new method. Um, anyway, we had, uh, we had uh, they had approved the, the, the proposal. And so we, I, as soon as I got the proposal approved, I went to the Harvard IRB to get permission to do human subjects research, even though all I had promised in the grant is that we were going to sequence one tiny bacterial genome, so something that was like 1.7 million base pairs, just a, just a little over a million base pairs. Uh, that, was the, that was the five year plan, was to get the technology to the point we could do that inexpensively. Um, and, and, of course, we blew it away. By, by, the, by eight months in, we had done something that was uh, four times bigger than that. Uh, and by the, end, by the end of the five years, we had not done 1.7 million base pairs. We had done uh, 30 billion base pairs. Uh, we had done five human genomes published uh, in Nature Science. And uh, anyway, we, went, we got IRB approval. It, it took a few, you know, a few months, uh, maybe a year, to get IRB approval. But we were in no rush because we still were just sequencing bacterial-sized genome. We were still 
thousandfold away from doing a human genome. But I figured I could see it was going, it was going to go fast, and possibly faster than Moore's Law, and I wanted to get all the ethics uh, and IRB stuff in place. And, uh, and so we got the IRB approval from Harvard, uh, it, and, uh, and I, I went to NIH and I said, look, I have your grant, thank you, and I have approval from the IRB, um, so let's do it. And they said, no, can't do it. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, I've got it. I particularly put in ELSI component into the grant. You approved the grant. You didn't, you didn't approve, you didn't strike out the ELSI component. I went to Harvard and got the approval. So why can't I do it? And they said, well, we don't want you to do it. And, and I said, well, what can I do to convince you? And they said, well, write a white paper. So we wrote a white paper. Um, and we went back and forth quite a bit, a lot of conversations. I, I went to, to NIH and met with Francis Collins and, and his ethicists that were sitting all around. And, and we had, these were good, good discussions. There was no, it was not like anybody was wrong so much, except I wanted to be able to do human sequencing, uh, you know, with the center grant by the end. Um, and uh, anyway, we wrote the white paper and they just wouldn't accept it. They just, they felt that, that making the data, that admitting that the data could be re-identified, which was my main point, was that it was, it was uh, unethical to claim to the participants that their data was uh, de-identified and therefore it should be identified. They didn't like that logic because it undermined, I think, all their other projects. And I said, look, I'm not undermining your other projects. I just want to do this one project according to the ethics that I think is the best ethics. Anyway, they wouldn't let it happen. So we just decided to do it uh, on our own with private money. And I raised uh, non-government money and we did the personal genome project just to show that it could be done. It wasn't intended to be, you know, a big scale up thing or, you know, I'm not, uh, my approach to scale up is to just make the technology so cheap that everybody will pay for it personally. Uh, and so you don't need a big project. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit anti-big projects. I'm much more interested in making small projects that enable uh, just the job to get done, um, usually by, you know, some innovative companies that make uh, a product that everybody wants. So, so you don't need a government uh, program to convince people to, to, to buy smartphones. Um, and I think the same thing will be true for genomes as well. Um, that's, a, yeah. that's really fascinating. And a huge part of the rule um, uh, in these big advances that your lab has made, especially with respect to Nixon, sequencing, CRISPR, and many other revolutionary technologies over the last decades, a lot of companies have come out of your labs, which are taking these out to the market. And you made a really brilliant point about sort of reducing the cost so much that it's available to everyone. That's your thought of scaling things up and all. So a lot of it owes to the incredible students you have trained and mentored over the years. You run a very large group of nearly 100 students and all. And you mentor an eclectic set of people who are multidisciplinary in every sense of the way and all. So how have you been such an exceptional mentor? Were, um, any of, uh, and were you inspired by any of your own mentors in your early days or even now and all in the 
mentoring that you provide to your students and all who have excelled both in conventional academia they have students who have been entrepreneurs and have been wildly successful and you yourself have done multiple hats and have been successful in every sense of the way uh well it's very flattering i don't i don't think i'm necessarily uh a, a terrific mentor um i i do i do acknowledge uh my my mentors uh and we've mentioned all of them already uh, in this, uh, uh, Sung Ho Kim, Wally Gilbert, and Gail Martin. And I would say, even before that, in, in, in high school, my favorite mentor was uh, Creighton Bedford. Uh, he was my math teacher in ninth grade and 11th grade, and I, and I acknowledged him in my thesis. Uh, and I've seen him not, not too many years ago as well. Um, and I think what they all had in common which I did learn, uh, whether I was conscious of it or not, is that, that, that they knew uh, how to be appreciative, uh, critical, but to step out of the way if, they ha if, if somebody was making a lot of progress or, or, or even had a, a burning passion without making progress. So I think that Creighton Bedford in both ninth grade and 11th grade gave me a, a huge fraction of a year off to, to learn uh, you know, linear algebra and uh, and, uh, and, and co doing math on computer. Um, uh, Sung Ho, uh, you know, I was a free spirit that was hard for Sung Ho to control. He was very enthusiastic, very uh, enjoyable, and I, and I got to know him and his family pers you know, as, uh, personally. Um, but he didn't micromanage me. Um, same with Wally Gilbert. Wally was interested in everybody's projects, but he knew, um, you know, he would let certain people at least go go run free, which and I was one of those. Uh, uh, and then Gail Martin uh, didn't know what to make of me. I I, I helped her lab technically, um, but but uh, my interests were clearly on genomics and crystallography, um, uh, and so so I mean, she, I think the lab benefited because I would. I would teach them how to do northern blots and, and, uh, and you know, hybridization that we'd use for in-situs and uh, DNA sequencing. I set up DNA sequencing for them. But I wasn't really doing a, a typical postdoc. Uh, I was just kind of helping them technically, and, and uh, I was learning by, by watching what they're doing. Anyway, um, so I think what they had in common is this kind of this knowing when to, uh, how to create an environment that, uh, where people can excel rather than micromanaging their day to day. Um, but then I think I added a few things to it that, that were, uh, you know, maybe more extreme. Um, certainly it was a larger lab, which was, which was one extreme, but I don't think it was the most critical. It, it was critical in the sense I had wanted to do multidisciplinary work and to do multidisciplinary, you need to have Lots of multidisciplinary people that each had, you know, a couple of disciplines of their own. So you know, we had to have optics experts and, uh, uh, you know, uh, laser and and we had a, a law student and an ethicist and um, you know, mammalian cell and bacterial cells and et cetera, et cetera. And you just you just needed to have a certain critical mass so that when you did collaborate, and we we've done a lot of collaborations we could collaborate uh, intelligently. We could hold up our end of it, um, meet, meet them in, in, in each of these fields. 
But another thing, I think another thing that was more extreme was the kind of embracing failure. Uh, I have a, it's not just about failing fast, which is a common motto, but it's about, I would prefer to fail a million times in a day and get maybe one or two successes than to carefully plan for a year and, and get one, uh, 100% success on one project because the quality of the product is much better the more things you try. So even if that one thing you happen to get right was right, you probably could have done even better if you had more failures. And in fact, Edison uh, said something along these lines that he, he wasn't proud so much of the light bulb that worked, he was proud of the 999 that didn't work uh, because that was where the real sweat equity came in. So, um, and there are a few other things that we do that are a little bit quirkier. Uh, you know, uh, we have ways that people can participate in very high-risk projects without risking their career. They'll have like one project which is not safe, but it's mature, meaning it's, it was never safe, but now that it's getting close to publication, it's, you can have that as, as one of your projects, and your other project is that same kind of project, but earlier stage. So, so it's basically early and late rather than easy and hard or mediocre and, and uh, impossible. So, um, and there are a few other things, but it, it's, it's, I, I love the in, environment, and I think a lot of the, I'm particularly proud of all the, the students that have come out of it, uh, and postdocs, uh, they're, they're really, they've, they're not just leaders in the field, they are very nice people. I recruited them because I felt they were nice, I encouraged them to be nice, and, and for the most part, they're very uh, helpful to the next generation. So they'll come back and they'll either, they'll either tell the next generation uh, of students um, how, how to succeed, uh, they'll tell them the, where the tricks are, where the, the landmines are in the minefield. They'll tell them, you know, who to, who to trust and who not to trust in the, let's say, in the business world, et cetera. And they're just like, they're like older siblings. And I, whatever we did to encourage that kind of cooperation, I, I, I'm particularly proud of that. So was that the only people, only people that come out of my lab that are not cooperative, which is extremely rare, uh, weren't there long enough. <laughs> Those are some absolutely terrific insights you shared. And two things that's really stood out, two really brilliant insights that stood out was being nice and making mistakes by the plenty, something that's crucial for every one of us to progress in science. Those were absolutely fascinating points you made and all. So coming to this, your lab has been involved in a lot of revolutionary technologies. At the same time, one knows the revolutionary impact of them at the same time, there is a chance of them being misused by bad faith actors. Something like genome editing can be used by people who have all the money to get a leg up and by creating sort of get in the free market environment, getting a leg up by creating designer babies of sorts that enable them to succeed at all costs and all. So how do you reconcile with the ethical conundrums that your revolutionary work has? Do you see the positives severely outweighing the negatives or any ethical implications that will have? And how do you sort of contemplate the broad impact your work has, both in a positive and a negative sense of way? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say it's, it's uh, the positives outweighing the negatives. There's almost no technology that doesn't have negatives, especially if you allow people to work creatively with them. So for example, 
you don't normally think of airplanes as being negative, but if you, if you drive an airplane into a building, it's apparently very negative. Uh, you know, knives are used for, you know, preparing food, but they can, there are negatives. So, so it's important, but, but it's not just a, a trade-off. There are, there are various win-win things that you, you can aim for as a technologist. You can try to uh, increase the positive and decrease the negatives. Uh, so almost every technology we come out with, we, we assume that there is a negative component and that, and we alert people, we try to think out of the box as to what those negatives could be and how we could mitigate them and minimize them. And we, and that's like our first papers is talking about that. For example, when we came out with CRISPR gene drives, the first paper on CRISPR gene drives, our first three papers on CRISPR gene drives were about safety. It's like how to keep them contained, how to, you know, biocontainment, how to, you know, um, daisy drives where we keep them, you know, so that they can't escape from an island, things like that. Um, same thing when we came out with a, a way of synthesizing DNA that was 10,000 times uh, easier, cheaper, um, we felt, well, that could, that could result in building pathogens. So I came out with a white paper on uh, how to do surveillance, um, uh, which is now in common practice. Uh, almost all the principles in, the, in that white paper of 2004 are uh, in use in over 80% of sequence synthesis companies around the world. Hopefully it'll be 100% uh, in the near future. Um, so it's, I think it's important for the technologists to embrace the ethics and safety component, not just leave it up to somebody else to do, because I think it, people will listen to it if it accompanies the technology more than if it's just people sniping in from outside. Uh, so that's one thing that's important. But the win-win, the technology is, we, we wrote a paper on how, so in addition to, uh, wrote a paper on how to um, do biocontainment via um, oxytrophy by making a, uh, a, ch a chemically synthesized amino acid that, that, that the cells had to have, not something they could find in the wild, which was standard up to that point. Um, in terms of designer babies, or, or, or for that matter, anything where you could take advantage of, uh, of wealth, um, we undermine that, to, or yeah, try to mitigate that by making the technologies as inexpensive as possible so it's available to everybody. And furthermore, it has to be accompanied by discussions and education, you know, both ways, between the public and the scientists and, and, and all, all around. Um, so it's not sufficient to bring down the price, but bringing down the price and having these discussions is part of it. But in this specific case of designer babies, it, it's not clear that the, that the wealthy would get a big advantage uh, even during the short period of time where it might be uh, only available to the rich. And it's not limited to babies, so, so there could be designer genes for adults, uh, and in fact, uh, gene therapies are the most expensive therapies in history. They're a million dollars a dose. <clears throat> so that is a, an opportunity for abuse. Um, and so, so we worked on br radically bringing down the costs of, uh, of gene therapies, for example, um, working on very common uh, gene therapies that could apply to everybody, like uh, diseases of aging. Uh, apply to veterinary uses where the, the cost of, of drug development is much lower. So those are two strategies. And, and then completely out of the box alternatives 
uh, like genetic counseling. So even though gene therapy is a million dollars a dose, genetic counseling, you can get a whole genome sequence for 300 bucks, uh, including interpretation. So, and that price we're continuing to drive down until it's essentially free, uh, the same way that, that you know, Google Maps and Wikipedia and so forth are free. Um, you get it down to a certain point and it, and it can be made freely available to everybody. Uh, vaccines, uh, small, smallpox is, is extinct. So that's zero dollars to everybody in the world. That's where we're aiming for it. But even if, even if uh, designer babies were freely available to everybody, that's only part of the ethical problem. It is a big one. Uh, the other part is, you know, is it safe? Is it uh, safe short-term and long-term? So the FDA mainly focuses on short-term safety. Uh, it doesn't worry about equitable costs too much. Uh, I'm sure they worry about it, but they don't, that's not their mandate. Um, the long term, you know, if it has effect one or two or three generations out, that's that they, they will monitor it and they will stop it once they see it. So something, sometimes, you know, things like Vioxx, it, it was out there in phase four, it was out in the population, and they groped it back in. Uh, the worry with, with germline is that it would, uh, that you can't reverse it just by taking it off the market because they're already in people. Um, uh, so I think that's a, that's a good argument. And, and since there's really very few cases where you can do it with germline and you can't do it some other way, by genetic counseling or by adult gene therapy, um, et cetera, that then it probably will not, it may end up being something, I'm not making a prediction, I'm just saying it's possible that it will some, that it just won't take off, just under its own weight, in the same sense that, uh, you know, people don't use balloons or jet packs that much, you know, personal jets on their back that much. They use uh, plane, airplanes and, you know, jet airplanes and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of technologies that, that we don't need to legislate, we don't have to prevent people from using personal balloons and personal jetpacks because they don't want to use them. Right? And I think, I think that may be a similar thing. The use case, the, the compelling uh, commercial or personal arguments are not there yet anyway. But we need to keep the conversation going so that we can see it way in advance. I think that's one of the, thing, one of the things that protects us um, in terms of ethics and safety is is uh, visualizing the um, negatives way in advance. So some of my colleagues don't like it when Hollywood uh, does a negative uh, slant on science. In other words, they'll, they'll paint scientists in a negative light. And I, and I actually, I'm not so uh, worried about that. I think it's actually a good thing. You know, Frankenstein, Gattaca, uh, Jurassic Park, uh, you know, these are, these are non-ideal representations of scientists. Uh, but what it has the advantage is that we think about it way in advance before it's a real thing. In fact, many of them are false, you know, uh, false, we never did get a Frankenstein, you know. Um, you just can't take parts of dead people and put them together and <laughs> make a live person, uh, no matter how much electricity you shoot in. But it's still, I don't think it's confusing it's, it's, it, it, what it makes us do is makes us think about, well, if, 
even if Frankenstein doesn't occur, something else could occur. And we use it as a metaphor now, as it were, you know, it's just a shorthand for watch out, look all over the place, you know, be just as creative about the negative scenarios as you are about the positive scenarios so that we don't have to live them, you know. That's a truly fantastic erudition. And you talked about Jurassic Park. And a couple, a few years earlier, there was this news about you being part of sort of trying to revive the woolly mammoth using the incredible work you have done and all. So how close do you think we are to creating a Jurassic Park, a living and breathing Jurassic Park, rather than the fiction world? Well, Jurassic Park's a nice example of, of how... Michael Crichton did us all a favor by painting this negative scenario, right? So uh, Michael Crichton was actually a Harvard Medical School student. Uh, so, you know, har kudos to both him and Harvard Medical School. And, and he, um, and, in his, and, and I remember when I read the, the book uh, before the movie, uh, I was thrilled to see it was one of the first, book, first popular uh, books that had DNA sequence in it. It actually had written on the page a long whole page of DNA sequence. And I was just curious, you know what, this was, this was before internet searches were easy, and I was just curious what the DNA sequence was of. And so I, I had to put together some tools that were not easy to, to search it, but I found, I found the match, and the match was actually to a sequence that I did as a graduate student. Uh, it was the first plasmid sequence that actually Greg Sutcliffe did 99% of it, but I helped him as that rotation student, and it was PBR322, which he had mangled. He had put in a bunch of, like, weird stuff mixed in, but it was mostly PBR322, this plasmid that, that is now, the pieces of this plasmid are still in use throughout biotech. Um, and he called it dinosaur DNA that he got it out of some mosquito, uh, but it, it, it had no relationship to dinosaur DNA whatsoever, or to, or to, or to reptiles, or to mosquitoes, or anything. Um, but, then, but then in terms of the, the safety message, um, when, when we decided that we wanted to bring back some extinct genes, not necessarily extinct species, so the first safety feature is bringing back partial genomes, because if you bring back the whole genome, there could be parts of that genome that you don't like. You know, there could be, um, for example, a lot of genomes have viruses in them, and you don't know whether those viruses are going to take off in the modern environment. You know, like if you, uh, one of the, one of my colleagues has uh, resurrected the 1918 flu. Well, the 1918 flu is probably not a good thing to have running around loose. Uh, but but the same thing could happen, the, L, the uh, mammoth DNA could have some viruses. So we're not bringing the whole genome back, we're doing it piece by piece, only the pieces we understand. Uh, that's, so that's safety feature number one. Safety feature number two is don't bring back Velociraptor and T-Rex, right? Don't bring back very serious hypercarnivores that are, you know, very fast and very big. Um, so uh, now mammoths are not... They're herbivores, they're, they're gentle. Uh, they are still dangerous because they're big. Um, but, the, but the point is, uh, and also put them far, far away from people. Now they did that at Jurassic Park, so it's, it's uh, you know, but the, then they brought the people to the island. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, so I, you know, we're, we're interested in um, the possible, not just saving, uh, uh, an endangered species, so the Asian elephant isn't, is highly endangered, 
um, but also saving the, uh, a whole ecosystem, which is re restoring an ecosystem that probably humans played a role in messing up a long time ago, which is the Arctic ecosystem, Canada, Alaska, and uh, Rus the Russian Siberia. Um, are all, they were beautiful grassland, which were much better at uh, sequestering carbon. In fact, they sequestered so much carbon that there's 1,400 gigatons there, more than all the rainforests of the world put together. The, the thickness of the layer is some, in some places 500 times thicker than the <coughs> rainforest uh, uh, topsoil. So it, it, grass is an incredible recipe for sequestering carbon because each year, it builds up a layer on top of the previous layer with long grass roots uh, that, that are frozen. And so you just each year you add frozen carbon, uh, much better than the current uh, system, which is resulting in the, the trees are bringing down uh, heat and they're, and they're um, allowing snow to, to, to pile up without getting packed down. So it insulates in the winter so that stays warmer longer. Anyway, it's melting. This 1,400 gigatons could melt because of the change in the ecosystem. So if we change it back, we not only save the 1,400 gigatons from, from turning into methane, but we also um, start sequestering carbon again at a higher rate due to the grass. So anyway, you have to have good reason. Something that goes beyond entertainment, which I think is the third uh, message from Jurassic Park. So we need authors. and and. And we work, my, my wife and I, Ting Wu is a professor at Harvard, we work with screenwriters to help them create their scenarios, whether they're negative or positive. Uh, we help them get the science right and to get the science entertaining. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, so for example, uh, she worked with uh, Grey's Anatomy to, to get a genome project into Grey's Anatomy. Uh, and many other examples. So I, I think we, that's, uh, I, I owe a debt to Jurassic Park. I mean, it was at least part of the uh, reason that, certainly not the main reason, but one of the reasons that we seriously considered um, uh, bringing back uh, ancient mammoth genes to make a cold-resistant elephant. Those are some truly fascinating points. And something that really stood out was the exceptional communication and outreach you have partaken in. And this has been an exceptionally wonderful conversation with you on your terrific journey through science and life. So finally, as a Random Works podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experiences in a Random Walk? Uh, well, you know, you, you know uh, an hour and a half is a big commitment. Uh, some of the people are not going to be uh, uh, available. Um, but uh, you know, certainly any of my mentors would, you know, just like Pranam Chatterjee suggested his mentor, I should suggest my mentor. Eventually you can get mentors that are so old they won't have any living mentors. Uh, so that would be one. There's three right there. Um, um, but, you know, there, there are many fascinating colleagues, uh, you know, the, the, the people that are pioneering uh, clinical applications, I think, of some of these technology would be quite quite interesting. Uh, you know, that are using next gen sequencing in the clinic. Um, uh, for example, non invasive prenatal testing is is now affecting millions of uh, uh, women families around the world. Uh, um, 
thanks to next-gen sequencing. Uh, and people in, in, that are working in the clinic on genetic counseling um, and, because it is uh, less expensive than gen gene therapy. And, and some of my colleagues that are working on um, aging reversal, uh, like uh, Noah Davidson that started one at the uh, company Rejuvenate Bio in San Diego. Um, there's no shortage of people that, that would be great to hear. Uh, maybe there's a shortage of time for them to uh, not everybody thinks that uh, uh, outreach to the public is, uh, uh, is their top priority. It, it can be uh, perceived as a distraction. In my, in my uh, experience, it, it, it's a fairly high return on investment. A few minutes here and there um, helps uh, kids get excited about science. It helps... Um, um, the public uh, make decisions, you know, not, you know, realize that the revolution is upon them, they can't keep putting it off. So um, maybe you could talk to some of the people who have, who do make a living uh, um, with public outreach, uh, you know, like the people in the pged.org, um, they might, they, they might have an interesting uh, angle on this as well. That's a fantastic note to conclude on. This has been an extremely pleasurable conversation. And thank you, Professor Church, for making the time. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, take care. Thanks a lot, Professor.